Hi, this is Pastor Nelson Mercado. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast from the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. I hope you are blessed by today's message. Father, we thank you, Lord. We, we've been rejoicing thus far this morning and, and into the afternoon already. But we're not done, Lord. We're, we're going to continue worshiping through your word. And so we pray your spirit to be in our midst in this, this afternoon already. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, take out your study, guys. We continue our present truth series. And we are on the second angel's message. We are the third uh, presentation on the second angel's message. And uh, if you can put that, uh, the PowerPoint on the back there, um, Brent, that would be very helpful. We, um, the last two meetings together, we talked about Babylon. We're looking at Babylon is fallen, and we're looking today at the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The wine of the wrath of her fornication. Now, the last two meetings, we... Uh, define end-time Babylon as a religious political system that opposes God, confuses the world, and persecutes God's people. And so we know that Babylon is the enemy of God's people. We also identified Babylon in the last two presentations. Remember, there's eight characteristics found in the book of Daniel. The little horn is the same system as Babylon, the same as the beast of Revelation 13, which, which we'll talk about later on in the series. And so we looked at each of the characteristics of the little horn, and we saw how they all fit with what we know as papal Rome or Roman Catholicism. Last time, we, we spent some time looking at the change of the Sabbath to Sunday, which is part of the characteristics of this uh, power. So let's look at our, our, our scripture reading, Revelation 14, 8. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, Babylon is fallen, the great city, because she has made all the nations drink of the wine of her fornication. And so we know, we ended last Sabbath with asking, you know, what's this fornication? Uh, we know that she is judged because of the fornication. Babylon is judged because of the fornication. So what is the wine of the wrath of her fornication? Well, first of all, I think we need to define what fornication is. Let's define fornication. You see fornication, if you look it up, fornication is defined as having a sexual relationship with a person who is, one is not married to. Yeah? Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. And by the way, uh, uh, um, this is obviously some, something that's so prevalent in these days, isn't it? You know, people living together like they're a married couple, and uh, unfortunately, um, it's happening in churches as well. People living, you know, shacking together, as they say, uh, and, and living as they're a married couple, but they're, they're not married. This is fornication, and it is a sin. It is a sin, but it's prevalent in our world, but it shouldn't be in, 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 in the church. Amen? Amen? But now, biblically speaking, biblically speaking or prophetically speaking, uh, a fornication is, or, or morality is a symbol of unfaithfulness to God and is drawn from the Old Testament. Okay, we see it all throughout this. Again, a symbol of unfaithfulness, uh, immorality uh, drawn from the Old Testament. Let me show you an example, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 15. But you trusted in your own beauty, played uh, the harlot because of your fame, and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. So God is speaking to his people, to the children of Israel. He accuses them of harlotry. Huh? 
But it's not only the Old Testament. We can find many passages. The New Testament also talks about this in James chapter 4, verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So when you are faithful to one, you can't be faithful to the other. God calls us adulterers and adulteresses. Now, of course, when we think about adultery, we know that adultery would be defined as if you're cheating on your spouse. You're having a, a relationship with someone else and you're married to somebody else, but still falls under the umbrella of faithful, uh, unfaithfulness or, or fornication. Okay? Now, we know that God has always related to his church as a bridegroom relates to the bride. So we know the church is the bride of Christ. And we know that a woman in Bible prophecy symbolizes what? The church, right? So the church is, uh, is the bride of Christ. So the imagery and the symbolism of marriage is supplied to, the, to Christ in the body of believers known as the church. Now Christ, the bridegroom, has sanctified and lovingly chosen the church to be his bride. However, when the bride is unfaithful to the bridegroom, she becomes an adulteress, committing fornication and immorality as the classic definition will suggest. But now in the context of end-time Bible prophecy, in the context of end-time Bible prophecy, fornication is a figure of the illicit connection between the church and the world. And, and James says the same thing, right? If you're a friend of the world, you're an enemy of, enemy of God. Uh, clearly, there's a lot more details in the book that I can't share with you. This is why it's important you read the book. But again, is that figure of that connection, and this is going to be um, more clear when uh, later on in the series we talk about the image of the beast, the image of the beast, but this illicit connection between the world and the church. The church, of course, should be married to the Lord, but when she seeks the support of the state, she leaves her lawful spouse. Now, the problem with Babylon is that she has made all the nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Right? That's the why she's judged. That's why she's fallen. So the wine of her fornication, notice, represents the false teachings that deceive the whole world. The false teachings of the seed of the world, again, the, the book has more details as, as to how we get to that point. The wine of her fornication represents the false teachings. Remember, she makes all the world drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. It is all the world. So if, if this is the case, then notice, it must represent something that the vast majority of the world believes. Something that is contrary to God's word. If she deceives the whole world, then all the world is believing this, okay? All the world is believing this, something that is contrary to the Word of God. But now, I think it's worth now mentioning a little bit of history, an Adventist history. And I'm going to show you a statement from the book, God Cares, A Message of Revelation by C. Mervyn Maxwell. He shares a lot of history there. And notice what he says. This is page 367. And 368. Protestants, uh, since Luther's day, have correctly seen Babylon as a symbol of what? Symbol of the Roman church. A Christian body whose leaders at worst rejected elements of the Bible truth and persecuted Christians who chose to believe it. Now, understand, and, and, and he says it clearly there, 
that this idea, this, that, 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 that Rome, that Roman Catholicism is this little horn, this power, this Babylon power, is not unique to Seventh-day Adventists. Now, you may argue it's maybe unique now, but this is, comes back to the Protestant Reformation. Protestants believe this. It's, unfortunately, it's as, as years gone by now, we, are, we're, we become more politically correct and we can't say these things anymore. In fact, there is a movement even among Adventists that we need to repackage our theology because it doesn't sound nice that we're talking about Roman Catholicism. But friends, we must tell the truth. The Bible tells it. We, this politically correct stuff has to go. We need to preach the Word of God and the Word. We have to preach it with love, but it is the truth. It's not going to change. He continues saying, by the second half of 1843, many Protestant churches in North America were ridiculing and rejecting the significant Bible truth Miller and his associates were preaching. Now, Miller associate, Miller's associates studied the second angel's message in light of Revelation 17.5 and noticed that Babylon is what? The mother of harlots. Now, that's an implication. If she's a mother of harlots, daughters, daughter harlots, carry their mother's name. Miller's helpers felt compelled to draw the conclusion that Babylon's daughters are who? The Protestant churches, who, like Rome, rejected Bible truth and harassed those who accept them. So again, Babylon, the mother of harlots, the implication is she has daughters, and the daughters of harlots, they're going to behave like the mother. So notice the issue when we talk about present truth and Babylon is fallen, it is not just Roman Catholicism. It is not just Roman Catholicism. And Mrs. White point, uh, presents that picture in great controversy. Page 383. Notice what she says. The message of Revelation 14 announcing the fall of Babylon must apply to religious bodies that were once pure and have become corrupt. Since this message follows the warning of the judgment, it must be given in the last days. Therefore, it cannot refer to Roman church alone, for that church has been in a fallen condition for many centuries. So when we talk about this Babylon is fallen, it's not just Roman Catholicism, friends. Remember, Roman Catholicism, you can say, well, Babylon, Babylon itself is Roman Catholicism, Revelation 17.5, and we talked up, we identified Babylon already in our previous two presentations. Babylon is the mother of harlots, which implies she had daughter harlots. These harlots are Protestantism. Protestantism. So the issue must not just be Babylon, but Protestantism, who have drank of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So it seems clear then that these, the, you know, the, when you drink alcohol, what happens to you? Those, those of you who have... Um, uh, had experience uh, in your past and been intoxicated, know that intoxication pro- pro- uh, produces confusion. You don't know how to think. You, you babble, right? That's why we call it Babylon, because we babble. We don't know what we're saying. We don't know what we're doing. And many spouses have been unfaithful because of the effects of alcohol. Haven't they not? Yes. So there's a connection here with being unfaithful to God. Babylon's daughters, the Protestant churches, have become confused and have become unfaithful to their God because of drinking of the wine of Babylon's fornication, as already mentioned, are the false teachings. Babylon, the mother, teaches something. Babylon, uh, uh, her daughter harlots, are also teaching the same thing and doing exactly as mom would do. 
So if there are false teachings, then, then what false teachings, what false teachings are taught by Babylon as, or as taught by Babylon have caused confusion and infidelity among Christianity? Well, we could talk about a number of them. If you've read the book, there's a, a list of, of, of different things. Uh, of course, what we talked about last time, the change of, of the Sabbath to Sunday, clearly is one of them, because Sunday, is a, is a, as a day of worship, is the belief of most Christianity today. And as we saw, this has nothing to do with what the Bible says, because there's no, no indication in Scripture that Sunday, uh, the Sabbath was abolished and that Sunday is the new day of, of worship. We saw it from the, the horse's mouth, as it were. They acknowledge that they, that, uh, they change it, Roman Catholicism did. So it goes back there. So we, we can make the argument that this is one of those false teachings that have confused the world. That have confused the world. But it's not the only one. Again, there's a number of them listed in the book, but notice this one. No false teaching has caused more confusion than the doctrine of the immortality of the soul. Now, this doctrine tells us that, that it is the belief that human beings possess the soul, that it is a separate entity from the physical body. This soul is immortal, this is a belief, and upon death of the physical body, it survives the body in a disembodied state and either goes to heaven or hell, or in some cases to a, a sort of midpoint, uh, they call it uh, um, purgatory, yeah, or limbo, who knows, I mean, uh, depending on who you talk to. Okay. Now, I'll tell you, as a, as, as a, as a former Catholic, uh, I know all about, you know, I, I, this is the kind of thing I believed. It was normal for me to believe in the immortality of the soul. This is what, what was taught. And, and I know uh, the kind of things that, uh, or superstitions that can arise from this belief. As a child, I remember I was about 12 or maybe 13, give or take, and, and my parents purchased a home in, in the town of San Sebastian in Puerto Rico, sort of northwest of the island. And I was so excited because I was finally going to have a room for my own, for myself. Yeah, the house had three bedrooms, and so you know, my parents' bedroom, my brother and I, we would have our room. I was so excited because since I was a little kid, all the way until that time, I had to share my bedroom. And so I was very excited. Oh, I'm going to have my bedroom. I can't wait. So, but, you know, in the process of getting the house ready uh, before we moved, my mom happened to have a conversation with one of our neighbors. And the neighbor told her about the story of a previous owner of this house who committed suicide by hanging himself from the tree, an avocado tree that was located right behind my house by the window of the room that was supposed to be mine. You know where I'm going with it. My mother prohibited me from sleeping in that room because in her mind it, the the spirit of this this you know guy can come and do something to you you can't sleep in that room so so much for having my bedroom i had to share my bedroom or, or you know bunk with my brother for next the next few years matter of fact i i i really never had my own bedroom <laughs> I, I got married shortly after <laughs> So much for dreams. <laughs> Where does all this come from? The, this belief of the immortality of the soul. Well, believe it or not, it comes from Greek philosophy. 
from Greek philosophy. Now, some of you may remember Samuel Bakayoki. Anybody remember Samuel Bakayoki? There's a few of you. He used to be a a very well-known author and researcher. He died about 10 years ago, I think, probably or something like that. I mean, I remember meeting him in the early 90s. And he's written, uh, he wrote a number of books on a number of subjects. If you, if you want a, a, a good uh, sources on this issue of Sabbath and Sunday and the change in the history, Samuel Bakayoki's book are fantastic. In fact, he wrote, he wrote a book also about how to keep the Sabbath holy, and it's, uh, it's a very practical book. But he talked about, he, he did research on this subject of immortality of the soul. I'm going to share with you um, a couple statements that he makes. Notice, he says, the classical view of human nature is largely derived from the writings of Plato, Aristotle, and the Stoics. The emphasis of these philosophies is on the distinction between the material and the spiritual components of human nature. In Platonic thought, human nature has both a material and a spiritual component. The material component is the body, which is temporary and essentially evil. And the spiritual component is the soul, psyche, or the mind, nous, which are eternal and good. The human body is transient and mortal, while the human soul is permanent and immortal. This is where it comes from. Now, now it comes from Greek philosophy, and maybe you're thinking, all right, well, if it comes from Greek philosophy, it didn't come from Catholicism. But if you think about it, this is the way it it happened. The early church, remember, the early church initially was a, a persecuted church. If you look at Revelation, uh, uh, the church of Smyrna is a symbol of this church, a persecuted church. Rome persecuted the church. But when Constantine becomes emperor, you know, Constantine is favorable to Christianity. Now, they say he, he became a Christian emperor. There's really some disagreements on that. I think he really never did. But he did favor Christianity because his mom was a Christian. So he was favored Christ, uh, Christianity. And now all of a sudden in Rome, Christianity becomes popular. And everybody started to join the church for the fringe benefits because now you, you had to be on the good side of the emperor. If you wanted to, uh, to, to, to progress or, or have success in society, you had to become a Christian. And so they become Christians. But what happened? The paganism came into Christianity and they brought with them all these beliefs. And that seeped into the church and became officially part of the church doctrine. So in that sense, yes. It's still part of the harlotry or the fornications that come from Babylon. Now, to understand the truth about death, of course, we've got to go to the beginning. Yeah, the beginning. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And the Lord God made man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. Or if you have the King James, it says a living soul. Okay? This word for soul or being is the Hebrew nephesh. Can you say nephesh? Nephesh. Nephesh. There you go. You said Hebrew. Yeah, and so this word nephesh means life, self, or person. Life, self, or person. Now, it's worth mentioning. When you go back, let me go back to uh, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. It's worth mentioning there that it doesn't say that man has a soul, does it? What does it say? Man became a living soul. Right? So man is a soul. You are a soul. I am a soul. We don't have a soul. The soul is what we are. And we use that kind of uh, uh, language in our own you know, vocabulary these days, right? There's about 160 souls here today. Right? We're not saying there are disembodied spirits everywhere. All of you are here. Right? All of you are here. 
And, and so being that the case, being that the case, we must conclude, we must have concluded that a soul can die because you can die. You're going to die, aren't you? Amen. If Jesus doesn't come before that, you are going to die because a soul can die. And the Bible tells us that in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4. Behold, all souls are mine. My soul, the soul of the Father is mine, as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins, what happens to it? Shall die. And this is the same word, the word for soul there is nephesh, the same word that we find in Genesis chapter 2. Okay? So it's not something that is eternal. It goes on without, with immortality. And Jesus talks about uh, the fact that the soul can die in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. He says, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather kill him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, there's a lot in that passage we can, we can unpack, but the point here is we can see that the soul can be destroyed. If the soul was immortal, it could not be destroyed, right? So clearly Jesus clarifies that, and the, and the, and the Greek word for soul there is um, suke, which also as, as nephesh means life, person, or self. Same word, same meaning, I should say. In fact, we, we know that there, nowhere in Scripture do we ever find the word immortal next to the word soul. Nowhere in Scripture. In fact, there's only one passage in the Bible that talks about a being being immortal. Who's that being? God, of course. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 and 16 who he, that is God, who is the blessed and only potentate, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in an approachable light with whom no man can, uh, has seen or can see, to whom be the honor and everlasting power. Amen. So God alone has immortality. So if he alone has immortality, that means that you can't have immortality. At least not yet. Not yet. Because we are told to seek for immortality. Yeah, Paul talks about it in Romans 2.7. Eternal life to those who have patient continuance in doing good. Seek glory, honor, and immortality. We are to seek immortality. If we are to seek immortality, the implication is that we don't have it yet. When, we will, when will we get immortality? In a twinkling of an eye, right? This is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 51 through 54, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Of course, sleep is a, is a way of saying death. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. There you go, Mary. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible... I'll tell you what, this is, this is some, some good stuff there. Hope. I share this passage with, uh, with a lot of the patients there at the hospital when I do chaplaincy because, as you imagine, there's sickness and disease and, 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 and you know, a lot of times they have no hope. But don't worry, this corruptible will put on incorruption. This mortal will put on immortality. Then we shall, uh, um, shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. When does that trumpet sound? Jesus. At the second coming. Now, it doesn't say the second coming there. It doesn't say the second coming there. So some people are, well, how do you know that, 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 that is talking about the second coming? Well, I know that because you've got to read things in context, right? This is why it's important to read the whole thing, right? When you go a few verses before, in verses 20 through 23, 
Notice what it says there. Same chapter. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as an animal die, even, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ, when? At his coming. So we know he's talking about the coming of Christ. When the trumpet will sound, that's when this mortal shall put on immortality. And not a second before, friends. But then what happens upon death? That's a good question. And to understand this, we need to first understand that death is not a natural process. This is not something that God willed. Remember when we talked about creation, part of the present truth, right? Because many people believe in evolution or theistic evolution that has creeped into Adventism as well. And, and, and if that's the case, then death must have been part of the process of creation. And then if, if that's the case, God willed it. But no, it is not a natural process. It's a, it is our enemy. It's opposed to God's will. Let me show you again from um, the book Immortality and Revelation, or Resurrection, from Samuel Bakayoki. This is what he says. When we search the Bible for a description of the nature of death, we find many clear statements that need little or no interpretation. In the first place, Scripture describes death as a return to the elements from which man originally was made. In pronouncing sentence upon Adam after his disobedience, God said, in the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. This graphic statement tells us that death is not the separation of the soul from the body, but the termination of one's life, which results in decay and the composition of the body. He, this, this basically agrees with the words of, of Solomon in Ecclesiastes 12.7. And the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who made it. But now, this passage can be a bit troubling, because it says, the Spirit returns to God who gave it. And so, uh, the the problem here is that how people define spirit today, right? The way people define spirit today is this disembodied thing, that entity that leaves the body and is floating around and it's immortal and, and, and either if, you, if it has unfinished business, it will, like my mom thought about the guy that you know, hung himself, you know, it's going to come and do something. Pull on your feet, they, they, they used to tell us when we were growing up. Huh? That's, that, that's the definition. And so we, we define it this way and so we apply to Scripture what, how it's defined today, but we can't do that with Scripture, right? This word spirit in, in, um, in the Hebrew is the word ruach. Can you say ruach? You've got to say the guttural, ruach. That's the Hebrew ruach. And that means wind or breath. So what is the breath that goes back to God when he dies? The breath of life, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, right? And the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. So what happens when God, when a person dies, the breath of life goes back to God, and what's left over? The dust of the ground, which is what um, um, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 12.7. Now, in both Old and New Testament, death is referred to as sleep. 
sleep. Well, let me, let me um, copy those. A breath that is being referred to as a breath of life for the sake of your study guide. For the sake of your study guide, all right? Uh, we, we want to make sure that you get all, all the questions answered there. You know, I, used to, I was telling Lucy about this the other day. I, I used to give a lollipops for people who com- completed at the, the study guys. I haven't been doing that. I need to do that again there. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it encourages you to be, pay attention. Here you go. Um, both in the Old and New Testament... But there's actually about 53 times where death is referred to as sleep in Scripture. I just included a few of them there for your, for your convenience. Death is referred to as sleep. Now, friends, death as a sleep is part of the good news of the present truth because there is no consciousness after death. There's no consciousness. And see, this is where people sometimes have a problem with. I heard one time Charles Stanley some of you have heard of Charles Stanley. He's a Baptist pastor in the Atlanta, I think. And he was t- preaching on, on this subject on how some people believe that death is asleep. And he, and he said, well, he couldn't comprehend. How is this good news? Because if, if I don't go to heaven or, 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 or go to hell, I'm, I'm laying there on that, on that tomb for hundreds, if not thousands of years. How is that going to be good news? And I would say that if we had consciousness after death and you're staying there waiting, there laying down for thousands of years, yeah, that would be torture, wouldn't it? But there's no consciousness after death. So whether a person died yesterday or they died a thousand years ago, it's all the same. The next conscious thought they will have when they wake up is either seeing Jesus coming to Klaus or heaven to take him home if they receive him as Savior or after the millennium waiting for judgment. But it's all the same for everybody, friends. It's all the same for everybody. But you know, somebody, some people do say, though, well, pastor, I'm comforted by believing that my loved ones are in heaven looking out for me. Have you heard of this before? Maybe some of you, if, if you believe this kind of thing, maybe you thought the same thing before. You know, um, in, again, coming from Catholicism, really Orthodox Catholics, they, they, they'll pray, and a lot of times they even pray to their, you know, dead loved ones, right? So my mom passed away. I said, Mom, please watch over me. You know, help me out with this situation. So they're even praying to their departed loved ones. And, 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 and you know, I, in some ways, I suppose that there is a comforting, you know, feeling of feeling uh, that mom is watching out for me or whoever that, is, that has died. But, you know, I, I want you to think about this because a lot of times we don't use logic when we think about these things. Revelation 21.4 says, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. So, so when, when, in heaven, it says, there's no going to be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more crying. Amen. Right. Now, if, if you're going through some trials in your life, say hypothetically, your mom passed away. Your mom loves you, you love your mom, she was always there for you. And, but now you're going through some trials, whether it's maybe sickness or maybe a, a, different, a bad relationship. You lost your job. You're going through financial distress. Do you think your mom in heaven is going to be happy about that? If, if she was here, you know, she would suffer with you, right? If you're going through pain, she, and she will cry with you. But, but, but is that going to change when she, she goes to heaven? Is God going to take away her feelings when she goes to heaven? So then, then, then you could conclude then that if, if she suffered here 
because you're suffering, when she sees you in heaven and, not, and is not able to do anything about it, she's going to cry too. But the Bible says there's no more crying in heaven. So it can't be that way, friends. You know, as, as, my, as, as comforting as this may seem, God's way is better. God's way is better. And, and you know, truth, uh, especially about this subject of death, is actually liberating. It's liberating. Let me give you an example. So this must have been about seven, 16 years ago or so. I've mentioned my, my friend Kenzel, my partner in the ambulance, and I may have told this story to some of you before. Well, he had a girlfriend, and, and his girlfriend um, shared with him, she had all her life, by this time she's in her early 20s, she um, had experiences with supernatural beings all her life. She defined them as spirits of the dead. And, and actually her mom, even her mom had gone through this. And so all her life, she had experiences with these beings appeared to her all the time. She would have conversations and even physical encounters. She showed me scars that told me that she said, this is because of physical encounters I've had with these beings. Now, uh, uh, over the years, she, she visited with, you know, other pastors. She visited with psychologists and psychiatrists about this. Some thought that she was crazy, but she still, deal, she still deal, uh, dealt with these things. She told her my friend Kenzo, and so by this time, Kenzo and I had talked about spiritual things, and so he, he knew what the Bible teaches about the immortality of the soul and, and what happens when you die, but he said, listen, why don't you come and, uh, and, and talk to my friend Nelson? And so he brought her home, and she, you know, she told me everything she experienced, and I told her, listen, I don't think you're crazy. In fact, I believe what you're saying to me, but the, the, the issue here is what you think that those beings are. Let me show you what the Bible says. And so we went through a Bible study on this subject, on the immortality of the soul. And once she understood the truth about this, she never had an experience with supernatural beings again. She was set free. Now, mind you, this led, this led to Bible studies. I had Bible studies with her. She never became an Adventist, but she did become a committed Christian in another church, and she still is. But after that, no more uh, encounters. Why? Because she knew the truth. The truth can set you free, friends. It's liberating. But now one of the issues that confuses people about death, of course, is eternity. What about the concept of eternity? Because there are passages in Scripture that if you read them superficially, would suggest to you that, yes, the punishment of the wicked goes on and on and on without end. So what about eternity? Well, we're going to talk about this in our next presentation, so hold your horses. We have one more presentation on the second angel's message, and we're going to talk about eternity. What about eternity in the context of this um, false teachings of Babylon? We'll talk about that next time. Amen? Thanks for joining us. If you're ever in the Nashville area, come and visit us at the Nashville First Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're located at 2800 Blair Boulevard in Nashville, Tennessee. You may also visit us at nfsda.org.